I have a question for you this morning. And the question is, what should the church be devoted to? Okay. Christ. Teaching and preaching. Okay. Prayer and fasting. All right. Good. The Apostles' Doctrine. Excellent. One another. Yes. Um, breaking bread together. Yes. Amen. My question comes because if you were to ask the same question to a hundred different pastors of a hundred different churches, you might get 50 different responses. We have seen a phenomenal upsurge in the last generation and our effort to try to bring in people and grow the church through entertainment. I don't know if you're aware of this. We're, we kind of live in it, so we don't really notice. Maybe if we had lived 200 years, you know, and we, we knew what it was like 200 years ago, and we know what the church is like today, then we'd have a better perspective on being able to see what's happened. But it's like the frog in the kettle. We've slowly been changing. And I'm talking about churches here in America, the evangelical scene across America. Churches often will try to use uh, drama or skits to attract people to come to the services or rock music in their worship. And they'll use, along with that rock music, laser lights and smoke bombs as a way to try to put on some kind of a great production or show. We use self-help programs in the church. Not only that, but we use worldly gimmicks. And these are all things that you can go online and you can find churches that use these things. Worldly gimmicks like slapstick, vaudeville, wrestling exhibitions, even mock striptease. There's one church that used a mud wrestling competition between the pastor and the staff to try to attract more people to come on Sunday night. And they had this mud wrestling competition. Well, we can, we can bring in the people this way. We'll just have this great mud wrestling competition. Another church spent a half a million dollars on this super special effects system. And at the end of the service, the pastor was, he ascended to heaven through these invisible wires while the orchestra and the choir down below were accompanying him with music along with lights and smoke going off the whole time. In addition to that, we have seen churches use ventriloquists, clowns, knife throwers, Weightlifters, bodybuilders, comedians, dancers, jugglers, ringmasters, rap artists, actors, and show business celebrities to try to grow the church. Now, you, you can verify all of these things that I've just said. That they're happening around the United States. This is, this is what we're devoted to as a church. If we devote ourselves to amusing and entertaining people, we can get them to come into the church and our church will grow. Now, what I want you to think about for a minute is how did the church in the book of Acts grow? And what did they devote themselves to in the book of Acts? The interesting thing in the book of Acts is that the people there never once, not even one single time, strategized on how they were going to attract a crowd for the gospel. I mean, do you ever find Peter saying, hey, John, what are we going to do today to try to get a crowd? We need to preach the gospel to them. Never happened. In the book of Acts, there are three different things that would constantly get a crowd. You might even be able to pick these out in your brain. Number one was miracles. 
Chapter 3. Remember? The, the man who was healed at the gate beautiful. <coughs> Peter stands up and he preaches to this great crowd of people and thousands were converted. And it didn't just happen one time in Acts chapter 3. It happens again and again and again as you go through Acts. So miracles. That's a way to get a crowd. Number two, persecution. Remember in Acts chapter 8, there a great persecution arose against the church and everybody was scattered abroad. They left Jerusalem except for the apostles. And whenever they went, when they were scattered, they preached the word, it says. Uh, you also find Paul and Silas thrown in prison in Acts chapter 16, persecution. Well, what do they do? They pray and sing songs in that prison cell. God sends an earthquake. The jailer's converted and his whole household and they baptize him that night. So not only do miracles draw a crowd and are worked for the gospel, but so do um, persecution. Does the same thing. The third way is through the synagogues. And this was really the strategy of Paul. Whenever he would go to a new city, he would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and it was such in the synagogue that those rulers would allow visitors, if they were, uh, you had to be a male 30 years or older, but if that was your situation, they would allow you to stand up and bring an exhortation to the rest of the Jewish people assembled that day. So wherever Paul went, he would go to the synagogue and he would preach Christ to the unconverted Jews in that particular synagogue. But isn't it interesting? You never in the entire New Testament find anybody using some kind of a special event to try to attract people and bring them to faith. There were no living Christmas trees back then. There were no celebrities that would come in and give their testimony to try to draw a crowd. Uh, there was no musical concerts that they used for evangelism. None of that. And they could have done that, couldn't they? They had balladeers in the first century. They had balladeers. They had clowns. They had mimics. They had uh, popular, famous political and athletic figures that they could have brought in to give their testimony. But in the early church, they don't do any of that stuff. It's, it's interesting to me. What the question I think we need to be asking ourselves is, are in our church, are we feeding sheep or are we amusing goats? Are we feeding sheep or are we amusing goats? Now, you know the difference, right? A goat is a lost person, a sheep is a saved person. Are we amusing the goats? Here's the thing. If you use carnal entertainment to get lost people to come to your church, what do you have to keep on doing to keep them, to get them to stay there? More and more carnal entertainment. And what happens? Do you find them being converted? No. No, because the gospel is what converts people, not entertainment. So you find you can fill up your church and the churches that use these gimmicks can be very successful in growing huge mega churches. But you have to ask yourself the question, how many people in those churches are converted? How many have been born again? If we use carnal entertainment and amusement to draw people, that's what you have as a steady diet for the people and we ought not be surprised if few of them are actually converted and go on to live holy lives. Charles Haddon Spurgeon about 150 years ago, had this to say. He says, The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. Had Christ introduced more of the bright and pleasant elements into his mission, 
he would have been more popular. I do not hear him say, run after these people, Peter, and tell them we will have a different style of service tomorrow. Something short and attractive with little preaching. <coughs> we will have a pleasant evening for the people. Tell them they will be sure to enjoy it. Be quick, Peter. We must get the people somehow. Jesus pitied sinners, sighed and wept over them, but never sought to amuse them. The mission of amusement fails to effect the end desired. It works havoc among young converts. Let the careless and scoffers who thank God because the church met them halfway speak and testify. Let the heavy laden who found peace through the concert not keep silent. Let the drunkard to whom the dramatic entertainment has been God's link in the chain of the conversion stand up. What he's saying is those people who have found Christ through amusement, let me see who you are. He's saying, next sentence, let the drunkard to whom the dramatic entertainment has been God's link in the chain of the conversion stand up. There are none to answer. The mission of amusement produces no converts. The need of the hour for today's ministry is believing scholarship joined with earnest spirituality. The one springing from the other as fruit from the root. The need is biblical doctrine. So understood and felt that it sets men on fire. Lord, here's his prayer, Spurgeon's prayer. Lord, clear the church from all the rot and rubbish the devil has imposed on her and bring her back to apostolic methods. Now, Spurgeon would have keeled over in his grave if he could see what's happening today in the church. I mean, back then, if you were to go to a concert or to the theater, is what they called it, the theater. It wasn't like our theater. But to them, the theater was very worldly and sinful. And if anybody tried to use the theater to attract people, uh, you know, they, these godly old men would have nothing to do with it. So, the question, what is the church supposed to be devoted to? What is the true answer? If it's not entertaining and amusing people, what is the true answer? Well, let's look at our text today. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 47. Verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Notice verse 41 and 47. And tell me, what's the link between those two verses? 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you see a link? Well, what's the, what, what word is 
connecting those two verses together. Fellowship's the idea. Added. Verse 41. Those who were added were about 3,000 souls. Verse 47. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So look at 41 and 47 as sort of bookends to this section. Now, inside those bookends, you have a description of what early church life was like. This is wonderful because we get to look sort of into a window and see what the church was like. And there's not very many clear pictures of how the church functioned when they gathered. But here's one. We have another one in Acts chapter 20 and another in 1 Corinthians 14. Just glimpses into early church life. Now, I think Acts chapter 2 Verse 42 is a summary statement of what the church was devoted to, but then verses 43 to 47 are an expanded description of four things that are mentioned in verse 42. So verse 42, there's your thesis, your summary statement. 43 to 47, it's like the rest of a paragraph. It's filling out for us what we just read in verse 42. Now, we read in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to four things. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Four things. Now, let's just think for a moment about that word devoting. Devoting. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament trans... or defines that word as to occupy oneself diligently with something or to pay persistent attention to something or to hold fast to something. Kenneth Wiest, in his expanded translation of the New Testament, translates that word devoting as giving constant attention to something. I went on dictionary.com just to get a, a di dictionary definition of the word Devotion, and their definition is this, profound dedication, earnest attachment. So profound dedication. You, you may have heard stories of an elderly couple where the wife gets Alzheimer's and the husband devotes himself to his wife, even though she doesn't even recognize him anymore, doesn't even know who she, who he is. He'll go to the, the hospital where she has to stay two or three times every single day. We're talking about that kind of devotion or the devotion of a mother for her infant, making sure that all of that infant's needs are taken care of to the great sacrifice of the mother. This is what we mean when we come across this word devotion. The early church was devoted to those four things. And then notice that other word, continually. Continually. This devotion wasn't haphazard, right? It wasn't sporadic. It wasn't for a season while they were on fire for the Lord and then it fell away and drifted off. This was a lifestyle of the early church. This was a constant, ongoing lifestyle. This devotion to these four things. So this morning, I want us to take a look at those four items, how the early church was devoted to them, and then make application to our church here at the bridge. Now, number one, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, 
the apostles. They were those who had been with Jesus from the baptism of John all the way to Jesus' ascension, about a three and a half year period of time. They had seen him walk on water. They'd seen him multiply loaves and fish, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. They had heard his teaching, right? They, they heard the Sermon on the Mount from his very lips. They heard the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. They heard his teachings over and over. So what do you think they did when they got together, when the church assembled, and the, we had the apostles' teaching going on, what are they telling these young converts? Yeah, they're repeating the teachings of Jesus. They're telling them the Sermon on the Mount. They're telling them all the teachings that Jesus gave them. And in addition to that, they would be giving these young converts basically the substance of our New Testament. Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude and all these men wrote letters and um, gospels that we have in our New Testament. Well, they would be repeating the substance of all of that. So even though we have no living apostles today, we can still have the apostles' teaching because we have it in this book. The New Testament is a summary of the apostles' teaching or doctrine. So, they were absolutely committed to hearing and understanding and obeying the teaching of the apostles. Now, where do you suppose this teaching took place? You think it was in a house, okay? <laughs> that would be a good guess. But and, and I think some of it did take place in homes, but I think there would be no way that they could do this teaching in a home because they had 3,120 converts. Now, in addition to that, they had unsafe family members, lots of children, maybe unsafe spouses. So if you put all those people together, you probably have six to 10,000 people that were regularly attending meetings of the church. You've got 12 men that have to teach six to 10,000 people. And I figured that I did the math. Each apostle would have to hold 20 to 30 house meetings every week just to try to teach every person in that church once. It would be impossible. So they're not going to be able to do it in homes alone. Look at verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. I believe that's where it happened. In the temple. We know in Acts 3.11 and Acts 5.12... We find out that there was a specific place in the temple that they met. Does anybody know where that is? Solomon's portico. It was this covered colonnade, a very public place. And so the Christians would go, and this is where Peter preached, and thousands were converted. And they would go to Solomon's portico. You remember they were Jews, and they still, some of the Jewish traditions were still carried over in their life, like the hours, stated hours of prayer. So they would go up at the various hours of prayer. They found themselves congregating at Solomon's portico. And because there was a porch, when it was raining or snowing or whatever, they would be out of the elements. They could meet there. And the benefit was that not just 30 people in a home could meet, but now you've got hundreds, maybe even thousands of Christians could meet at a single time to hear the apostles teach. And so one day you might have Peter preaching at Solomon's portico, the next day John, the next day James, and all the twelve cycling through, teaching the people about what Jesus had taught them. It was also a strategic place to meet because you've got all these unconverted Jews that might be overhearing the apostles as they taught. And hopefully some of these unconverted Jews are listening, paying attention to the Messiah, Jesus has come. Now, how can we be continually devoted 
to the Apostles' teaching today. I, I believe that the teaching of the Apostles or the teaching of Scripture should be the backbone of every church and should saturate the meetings, the gatherings of every church. I mean, we've always done this from day one at the bridge. The, the Scriptures, the Bible, is like the backbone of all we do. We love Scripture here. Um, it's that God uses the Word of God to edify us and to make us holy and to sanctify us. One thing we must never do, though, as we're teaching the Word of God, is to modify it or sugarcoat it or try to make it a little bit more attractive than God has already made it. What would you say of somebody who's delivering a message, they show up at your door, they ring the doorbell, and they say, I've got a message for you, Mrs. Anderson. And let's say I'm off in Iraq fighting as a soldier. And this person says, I've got a message for you. Um, your, your husband has been wounded. He's, he's been wounded, but I think he's going to be okay. Take heart. You see, this person knows that if they gave the true message, which is that Debbie Anderson's husband has died, that she's going to fall down and start weeping. I hope she would. <laughs> she would feel, feel bad for her. And so instead of giving her the true message and repeating it word for word, the way it was originally given to that delivery boy, he changes it because he doesn't want the people to be too sad about that message. When we preach and teach the Bible, folks, we have to deliver it exactly, as far as we can, the way it comes to us in Scripture. And I think one of the problems across the landscape today is that we sugarcoat things. We want to make it we want to make it a little bit more attractive and easier than what God says. So if in the Bible we hear God thundering against sin and calling people to repentance because the wrath of God is coming our way, and we say, well, you might want to consider believing in Jesus because if you don't, a Christless eternity awaits you. Folks, we've just sugarcoated the whole thing. We're not telling people the truth anymore. We're, we're, <laughs> do you get my point? We're changing it. We're changing God's revealed will, and we must never do that. We must pass on the apostles' teaching the way the apostles gave it. And so, how are we going to do that here at the bridge? Well, this is sort of a new phase of our church life now that we've come back into the home. And uh, what we're going to do is have a main teaching every Sunday, in addition to allowing the brothers that have brought a short teaching to be able to give that so we're going to have scripture saturating our Sunday meeting. Um, when we meet as men on Tuesday morning, we're going to be going through scripture together. The ladies go through scripture Monday night. Our equipping class on Wednesday night is going to be all about the word of God. So the word of God is just going to saturate this church all over the place <laughs> from beginning to end. So that's the way we're planning on being continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. Okay, secondly, they were continually devoted to fellowship. Fellowship. Let's get a, a definition of fellowship. If I were to ask you what fellowship is, you might say, well, isn't that what you guys do when you have coffee and donuts after church and you, you sit around and you socialize together? Fellowship is not socializing, although that's what we think it is. The root meaning of the word fellowship is to have in common. To have in common. 
So if you are sharing with each other about the spiritual things that you have in common, that is fellowship. That's one form of fellowship. But notice in our text, verse 44 and 45, notice what they had in common. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. How did the early church fellowship with each other? They said, this, this guy doesn't have any place to live. I've got two homes. Well, hey, I'll just sell one of them. And then I'll give him some money so that he can have a place to live. I mean, you say, man, that's radical, Brian. Well, that's New Testament Christianity. It seems radical to us because we don't obey it. <laughs> we, we don't live this way. God's calling us to a deeper kind of Christian living as a church. He's calling us to love each other just like Christ loved us. Remember the sermon, two, I think it was two Sundays ago, um, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. And we said that means that we are to love each other sacrificially. We're to love each other fervently. We're supposed to love each other like Jesus loved us, which is mean he put our needs ahead of his own comfort. And he laid down his life for the church. And so we are to love each other in the church just like that. And so let's say somebody here finds themselves without a job and they just can't make their rent. Maybe it's going to mean that we as a church come together and say, hey, brother... I've got a couple hundred dollars I can help you with this month. And another brother says the same thing, and before you know it, his rent's paid for that month. Uh, if we find someone that needs a car and has nobody, no money to buy, them, maybe it means that we're going to go and take up a special offering and give them money to buy a vehicle. You see, it's going to mean that we care for each other and we look out for each other. That's really having all things in common. That's having fellowship with each other. And in addition to that, it means that when we gather, we do share the things of Christ in common. We speak about the things of Christ with each other. We find it really easy, don't we, that when we get together to speak about the weather and about the 49ers and about the new dress somebody's wearing. What, what we need to learn how to do is speak about Jesus and what we have in Christ to each other. So when we have the Lord's Supper together, let's be thinking, how can I... How can I talk to someone about what God has been doing in my life or what God has been doing in their life or a scripture I've been meditating on or a scripture I've been memorizing or an evangelistic experience I've had or maybe get some guys together and make plans on how we can bring the gospel to a particular community. See, that's, that's rich Christian fellowship right there. That's what we should be setting our sights on. <clears throat> Notice something else from the text. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were what? Together. How often do you think those early Christians were together? Daily? 46 says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. You can find these Christians either at the temple or in homes every day of the week. They were... They were blown away. They were overwhelmed by what God had done for them and the newness of Jesus as their Messiah. And so they, they wanted to be with each other. They wanted to be with each other a lot. In fact, I think if we were to live out verse 42 
a continual devotion to these four things, it's going to mean that we're committed to being together more than just Sunday morning. I'm sorry, folks, but that just isn't going to make it. Even though I hope we have a really wonderful, fairly lengthy Sunday morning service here, we need to learn to live out our Christianity with each other throughout the week. So my recommendation, this is just my recommendation, is that we be firmly committed to Sunday mornings and then the women committed to their gathering and the men committed to theirs. And then if you can also make Wednesday evening the equipping class, that would be just a wonderful diet where we're seeing each other often. Wednesday night, we're going to make plans to do outreaches together and then we're going to actually go out and do those outreaches. So it's going to require a day-by-day -day kind of lifestyle, rather than, oh, I'll see you next Sunday, see you next Sunday, where we don't really get into each other's lives, we don't really get to know each other that well. Uh, from what I read in this section, it seems like these early Christians knew each other, they loved each other, and they devoted themselves to each other. So, not only the apostles' doctrine, but fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. <clears throat> Verse 42 and verse 46 contain that phrase, the breaking of bread. 42, they continually devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Verse 46, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Now what do we mean by breaking bread? And scholars are divided on this, but I don't, I don't think there's too much ambiguity here. I believe the breaking of bread is talking about the Lord's Supper. And I do because everything else in verse 42 is talking about a sacred spiritual activity. Apostles teaching, there's the Bible, the Word of God. Fellowship, sharing with each other in common. Prayer, so you've got the Word, fellowship, and prayer. Simply getting together to have a common meal doesn't fit that verse. But the Lord's Supper does fit. And breaking bread was a common euphemism for the Lord's Supper in the first century. That's why four verses later in verse 46, it says they were breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together. And you say, okay, but wait a minute. That can't be the Lord's Supper because it says they were taking their meals together. Well, what was the Lord's Supper in the first century? It was a meal. It was a supper. It, that's why we're going to have a meal with the elements of the bread and the cup as prominent symbolic elements, but the whole meal we consider to be the Lord's Supper. And that's what the early church did. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33 says, when you come together to what? To eat. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when they had come together to break bread. So the only time you find a purpose statement in the New Testament about why the church met, uh, there's three of them. The other one is 1 Corinthians 11.20. Every single time that pur purpose statement is to eat the Lord's Supper together. So the Lord's Supper was the centerpiece, the focus, and you might say the climax of the gathering of God's people when they met. So we want to institute that now that we're in a home. I always wished we could do that when we were out at the storefront and then later at City Hall, but it was just impossible because we had two hours that we could be there and we, we just didn't have the time for it. 
But now that we're back into a home, we can do, we can follow the early church's example. And I think there's rich, tremendous blessing to following that example. I hope you agree as we start to implement that today. Now, some people say, well, if we, if we had the Lord's Supper every week, wouldn't that just become routine? You know, shouldn't we, shouldn't we do it once a month, maybe? Or once every three months? Or once a year? Churches vary on how often they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, we could apply the same principle to our Bible reading and prayer. We don't want our Bible reading and prayer to become routine, right? So maybe we should just pray and read our Bible once a month or once every three months. <laughs> See, the issue is not how often. It's, Lord, revive my heart every single time I do this thing. These are spiritual disciplines that help the church to grow together in godliness. How many churches, if we took this massive poll of all the churches in America, how many churches, if they say, are you continually devoted to the Lord's Supper, would actually say, yeah, that's true of us. We're continually devoted to the Lord's Supper. I don't think it would be very many. But I hope that the bridge is a church like that. We find the early church as a church like that. Now, where do you suppose they ate these Lord's Supper meals. Did you see it in our text? What verse is it in? 46 and 47. 46 says, And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. Breaking bread from house to house. The house is the perfect setting for a Lord's Supper meal. You could do it at a park if you wanted. But, I mean, this is really... It, it's just, it's laid out for it. It's laid out for it. So, they were doing it from house to house. Notice the spirit in which they took the Lord's Supper. Did you notice that in verse 46? How did they do it? Gladness, and what else? Sincerity of heart. Gladness, that speaks of joy, right? Sincerity. That speaks, it's, it's not phony, it's not fake. It's real, true, authentic. So joy, authentic joy is how they partook of the Lord's Supper. Oftentimes we're told that when we take the Lord's Supper, we have to take it very somberly and soberly and be very serious about it because we have to do this introspection. We have to examine ourselves to make sure we're not taking it unworthily. Well, that unworthily comes from the King James Version of the Bible. It's a bad translation. The NASB has it in an unworthy manner. Yeah, we need to examine ourselves to make sure we don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But that's different from taking it unworthily. If we take the Lord's Supper unworthily, that means that we're, that I as an individual have something wrong with me that I need to repent of. So I have to be personally worthy to take it. And that's how people have interpreted that passage for for decades, maybe centuries. They tell people you need to examine your life, confess any known sin, and only when you've done with that can you take the Lord's Supper. That's not the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you read it in his context from beginning to end, there was a special problem in that church. And the problem was some people were coming early and eating everything up and drinking all the wine. Other people who were slaves couldn't get off early. They had to work for their masters, so they came late. When they got there, all the food was gone. All the wine was gone. 
And so the rich, having come early, had eaten and drunk everything, and so there was nothing left for the poor. And Paul is saying, what? How can you shame the church of God like this? See, the Lord's Supper is to be symbolic of the unity and love the church shares together. And when people eat it up before other people get there, they're destroying the symbolism. And so Paul says, that's an unworthy manner. You're taking it in an unworthy manner. Examine yourself to make sure that's not happening. Because if you keep doing that, God is going to visit you with judgment in terms of either sickness or death. And that's what he had already done to the church at Corinth. So, apart from us doing what they were doing in the first century, um, I would say we, we don't have to have this long introspection about our personal sins. That's not the point of that passage. Here's, here's the spirit that we should be partaking in. Authentic joy. When you think of what Christ did for you, you ought to be filled with joy. That you're not bound for hell. That he has saved your soul. That you're forgiven of every sin you've ever committed. That he sent his spirit to live in you to be your guide to heaven. It should be joyful and it should be sincere. There should be no, no, um, degeneration in any way of taking this beautiful holy thing that the Lord has given us and making a mockery out of it. We want to make sure that we are, in one sense, we are serious about it. In another sense, we're joyful about it. We're sincere. Let's go on to number four, prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Where do you suppose they were praying together? What was your, from house to house? Okay, there's a, that's a good guess. <clears throat> and someone else says the temple. I think both of those are probably true. And the reason I think, think the temple was one of the places they prayed is because in Acts chapter 3, they went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So they were in the habit. They were Jews. That's what they always did. They just kept on doing what they always did. They went up to the temple and they prayed. Now, is the prayer in verse 42, is that personal, private prayer, or is that corporate prayer that's being described? You say both. <laughs> Actually, literally, it's the prayers. That's what the Greek says. The prayers. What are the other three things we find listed in verse 42? Is it corporate or private? Apostles' teaching, fellowship, Lord's Supper. Corporate. What do you think prayer has to do with? Corporate. This is the church praying together. Some of it was up at the temple where they could pray as a body. Some of it was in homes and maybe 30 people like we have this morning praying as a body. So that's, I believe, what's, what was going on. That's the where. What about us? If we're to be continually devoted to the Lord's, I'm sorry, to prayer, um, I think every Sunday morning, there ought to be some time that we as a church pray during our open session. And what I'd like to do during that open session part of our gathering is to have people share prayer needs and people talking about who they've been witnessing to. And as all of these kinds of things surface, then at the end of that open session, we'll say, okay, let's pray for all the things that have come up, all the things that the Lord has just done amongst us for the last hour. Let's pray about that. So prayer every Sunday, 
Of course, when the men get together and the women get together, we have prayer then, we have prayer Wednesday night. We just want to, just like the Word, we want to saturate our church life with prayer. And in addition to that, I think it would be great if we continued having our monthly day of fasting and prayer. That gives us a block of time where we can come together fasting and praying that God will lead us as a church and how we can continue to make disciples who make disciples here in Rancho Cordova and elsewhere. Also, we can be praying about God helping us to grow so that we can multiply congregations, raise up new pastors to send with people to start new congregations. Folks, this is our first meeting. If, if we continue to grow, we're not going to be able to fit that more, many more people in this room, right? Maybe five, five or six, maybe. I and mean, that's not very many. So we need to be planning now. How are we going to take care of another congregation when we plant one? We're going to need pastors for that. So we need to pray. And we need to pray especially that God would help us to have a heart for lost people. One of the tendencies of house churches is to turn inward. I've been in them for 10 years, and I know that for a fact. Because the fellowship usually is richer and deeper in a house fellowship than in a public setting, for whatever reason. So the tendency is because we enjoy this fellowship so much, we just kind of, that's all we do. Hey, let's have some more of that. <laughs> and we don't think of a lost and dying world around us, but we can never, that, that's the reason we've been left here on this planet, Right? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's our marching orders. If we don't do that, we failed as a church, no matter how great the fellowship is. If we don't do that, we're not carrying out the king's orders. He ascended back to heaven, but that's what he told us to do while he's gone. And so I'm just exhorting all of us, myself included, Let's keep that forefront in our thinking, in our planning, as we pray, as we talk from week to week. Let's keep disciple-making as, as essential to the life of the church. Now, let's notice the conclusion. When they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread into prayer, what was the outcome? What happened? Look at verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who was doing the adding? The Lord was. This wasn't something the people were doing. The Lord was adding. Why? Because the Lord was saving, and then he was adding. <laughs> Do you remember Jesus' statement in Matthew 16? He told Peter, Upon this rock, I will build my church. I'm going to do it. It's not, our, it's not our responsibility to build the church. Jesus said that he was going to build the church. Now, we can assist him. We can cooperate with him in building the church. But that's really his job. It's his responsibility. Okay, so the Lord was adding. The Lord was building his church. How do you suppose the Lord was doing that saving? Was he doing it all by himself or was he using people in the process? The yeah, he was using the apostles. Good. Look at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. How do we find this, these wonders and signs leading to conversion later in the book of Acts? 
Next chapter, right? The lame man who never walked, he's at the gate, beautiful. He says, I need some alms. You know, he left, held out his hands to Peter, and Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus, walk. And he lifted him up, and his ankles were strengthened. And he was so excited, he started running around, dancing, and <laughs> leaping all over the place. A great crowd forms. Peter preaches the gospel, and thousands are converted. So I believe that that's one of the ways God was adding to the church. Through the preaching of the apostles that happened concurrently with signs and wonders. But I don't think that's the only way. Because notice verse 47. These people meeting from house to house, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Who are all the people? Yes, this is all the unconverted Jews that live in Jerusalem. They, God was giving them favor with all these unconverted Jews. So that, at least at this point, there wasn't persecution happening. And it does happen later, and fairly quickly, the apostles are persecuted. But in verse 47, we have this favorable relationship between the early church and the unconverted Jewish community that lived in Jerusalem, so that God was using their their witness through these relationships, these favorable relationships, to draw people into the church and be converted. So you have both the preaching of the apostles, but I think you also have just the general witnessing through everyday relationships of the rest of the church. These brand new Christians, they're talking to their friends. They're talking to their mom and dad. They're talking to their children. They're talking to everybody about Jesus is the Messiah. And God is using that to save and bring them into the church. So folks, do we need gimmicks to cause the church to grow? Do we need entertainment? Do we need amusements? Did the early church have gimmicks, entertainments, or amusement? Did they grow? What do we need more than anything? We need Jesus. We need the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. And we need to be committed to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And we need to love each other. We need to really love each other, sacrificially and fervently, from the heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd seal your truth to our hearts this morning, and that, Lord, you'd take us and mold us into a close-knit, loving group of disciples that at least in some form or fashion, mirror what we see here in Acts chapter 2. Lord, this is an exciting chapter of the history of the early church. It's exciting to read what happened then. And Lord, would you do it again today? In Jesus' precious name, amen.